Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones Marital Tour of Misguided Medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. <sighs> you okay there, Justin? Ah, uh, you know, Sid, jet lag. I'm jet yeah. lag. I was oh. out on the West Coast. Jet lag. It's so tough. Flying yeah, back and you. forth across the country doing shows. There is nothing more exhausting than jet lag except maybe watching our children without me around. <laughs> yeah, except solo parenting, running the household, going to work. Taking care of a sick kid. She's okay now, by the way. Thank you. Where were you all when she was sick, though? That's my question. <laughs> Where were you when I needed amoxicillin for an ear infection? Not me, but our child. Anyway, all is well. Um, Justin, we're not talking about Burning Man this week. That is not what we're talking about. That will be the first time since I've been back that you have not been talking about Burning Man. So imagine I, my surprise. I do want to say, I feel like for posterity, I want to get this on the record, that I feel like there's probably a future episode that may come. If you're not following what's going on out at Burning Man, which is this, I don't even know. It's a big art festival, music, art, whatever, Live Your Truth festival out in the desert. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been, but <laughs> I've watched documentaries about it. Uh, but anyway, the, it rained and they're on these, they're in this like ancient dried up lake bed that's made of like alkaline dust. Yeah. And then it rained, which I guess it like never does there. And so now it's this sort of mud that no one can move in. You can't walk in it. You can't drive cars in it. You can't ride bikes in it. So everybody's just kind of, there's like 70,000 people stuck there. Although I guess a lot of people have by now hiked out the five or six miles out in the mud to the road and to hitchhike back to like towns. Every few minutes, Sydney will just be in another room and I'll hear, well, another truck got stuck. It's wild to see. The The reason it interests me from Sawbones, and this is why I think maybe there's a future episode here. So I'm put again, I'm going on the record. It So this stuff isn't like regular mud. It's like right. a salt flat. It's really alkaline. It's the opposite of acidic, right? right? It's really basic. And it like the pH is 9 or 10 or something. So anyway, if you get it on your bare skin for long enough, it can cause kind of like chemical burns almost like it, okay. it draws all the moisture out of your skin and you can get big cracks like oh. opening right because your skin gets super dried out and a bunch of people are walking around barefoot and what i started looking up is what kind of bacteria specifically thrive in alkaline environments because there are bacteria like we used to think like most and most bacteria like neutral environments mm -hmm. you know like the 
pH in the middle. Some like really acidic, some like really alkaline. The ones who like really alkaline that might survive out in those salt flats, now there's all these cracked open feet wandering around. There may be a really unfortunate but interesting episode of Sawbones. Oh, gosh. That's pending. Grody. I gotta My, be I, no one at Burning Man can hear me because they're stuck there, but like, the, please don't walk around barefoot. Please don't. <laughs> Moisturize a lot when you get home. <laughs> So anyway, I just want to go on the record and say that because uh, several people are like have already actually emailed to say is this a, is this a topic and I'm not sure yet, but I'm digging into it. There may be there may I'm on, I'm Trust watching me, the if he, the amount of time Cindy is spending following the proceedings at Burning Man is any indication she will find the topic. I just thought it was inside. regular desert. I didn't know it was a salt flat. That's a whole other. I just didn't know that. I missed that detail. Anyway. Um, we are monitoring the situation closely here at Salva. <laughs> here at the HQ, we got the news desk is all over it. Yeah. Um, I hope everyone's okay. I do not wish anyone ill will. I'm sorry that I'm fascinated by it because that makes it seem like I'm detached and inhuman. I do hope everyone is okay. Yeah. Uh, you would hope that goes without saying, but yeah, now you said I, it. So I do no not want anyone there. to suffer, but I am watching to see what will happen. Um, we're not talking about that. There was another issue. There was a lot of discourse on TikTok about this past week. And Justin, probably not on yours. I get a lot of like medical TikTok. Some of it is because I've um, I've messed up my algorithm permanently for all of you. <laughs> um, some of it is like fake medicine TikTok stuff. And then other is like people calling out fake medicine mm-hmm. stuff. I get a lot of that, which is always interesting because then it kind of alerts me to something new and weird that's out there. And there has been this discourse about the oral glucose tolerance test. Yes. Uh, I remember lately. that. Yes. Um, the idea being that, and if, you're, if you've ever been pregnant or if you're familiar with this test from a healthcare perspective or because you, you know somebody who's been pregnant, basically it's a, and I'm going to walk you through it, but it's a test we do to look to see if somebody has or is at risk for gestational diabetes, meaning developing diabetes while pregnant. I remember this test because you thought it was really gross. Yes. The stuff that you had to drink, it yucked you out. Yes. And and right now the discourse is calling into question both the need for the test and then the method that we use to perform it, specifically how we go about it and if it's really necessary. Um, Just to walk you through it real quick before I tell you why it is necessary and why we do it the way we do it, because um, that's my thesis statement. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not to spoil it. <laughs> yes. Uh, let me just say that at the beginning. Um, if uh, Okay. So if you have certain risk factors, this can be a little different. It, like we screen you, first of all, based on history. Like when do you need to have this test done and, mm-hmm. and will you have one or two tests and all this stuff. And then mm-hmm. the other part is like what your result is from the test, whether or not you have another one done. Right. Um, Just to kind of give you an example, um, our first child was really big. I mean, there it is. There's no nice way of saying it was a big baby. Yes, she was a big baby. So big that uh, we ended up with a C-section. And so my second pregnancy, my doctor decided to go ahead and screen me earlier for gestational diabetes based on the idea that even though my test during my, I got all my screening in my first pregnancy, I did, I followed all the rules, but uh, it said I didn't have it. But then he was kind of like, I don't know, did we miss it? Your baby was really big. Maybe we should check, put you in a higher risk category, basically, and stratify you a little differently based on that. And I still tested negative, so I still didn't have it. I still did have another very large child, so I just have large children. She what Cooper was it? Well, I guess she was. They were big. both over nine pounds, honey. Yeah, Those are big, big babies. babies, big babies. Anyway, 
So when you're having the test done, the regular one-hour glucose tolerance test, this is what everybody is going to have done if you, if I mean, if your doctor orders it, you should have it done between 24 and 28 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, basically, the morning of the test, you go to the lab, you drink a glucola solution. So it's specifically a solution made of 50 grams of glucose. There are different kinds of sugar, right? There's fructose and sucrose, and there's all kinds of sugars. Glucose is what you drink in this test. Yes. Okay. Um, it, yes, it is Ose. the one that all I the sugars, right? Ose. 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 Right. Yep. The one that I drank was orange. Um, I think there are other flavors. I did not enjoy it. I don't. I've never heard anybody say like loved that glucola. I, I mean, it just it's an incredibly sweet. It's just sugar. It's just pure sugar. Our kids would probably orange like sugar. It. Oh, our kids would love it. Um, I found it difficult because I also was a little nauseous that morning, and so you know. It's unpleasant. But anyway, after 60 minutes, they check your blood glucose level. They have like a, an expectation that your body should be able to tolerate that glucose load, like get it out of your bloodstream and into cells where it can be used for energy. Um, and so if that level is under 140, and this cutoff, by the way, can vary a little bit from doctor to doctor. Like if you go to a different medical institution, you might find them say 135. There's a little bit of variability there. But generally speaking, if the level's under 140, then your body handled glucose the way we expect it to. If it's over that, then you may have gestational diabetes and we need to do further testing. Um, and then further testing is a three-hour glucose tolerance test, which is very, very similar, except for you drink the... First, they bring you in. They check your fasting blood sugar, meaning no food. Then you drink the stuff and then they check it at one hour, two hours, and three hours. And they have cutoffs for all of those. What should a fasting blood sugar be? What should a one hour, a two hour, and a three hour? Got it. Right? Okay. Same idea. Except for that one was 100 grams of glucose. But same idea. All of this, along with, you know, an appropriate history and physical exam and everything, can help your doctor decide if you have gestational diabetes and then can help you manage it if you do. Right? Um We've talked about diabetes before, and I'm not going to get into like, because we have a whole episode on diabetes and how yes. we have known about diabetes uh, for since ancient times. We have described things that we now call diabetes mellitus. Yes. Um, gestational diabetes is a little more recent, and I think it's important to talk about how we figured it out because it helps us answer the question, let's say that you listen to some of these people on TikTok who are urging you either not to get the glucose tolerance test or to do it your own way. That's mm -hmm. what I'm starting to see are people who are saying like, one, you just shouldn't do it. It's unnecessary. Um, and this is like a nuanced topic. They're accusing doctors of medicalizing birth unnecessarily. We're, we're, we're intervening with something that is a natural process and we should leave it be. And to some degree, I understand that concern. Having gone through two pregnancies, there are a lot of times where you just feel like, oh my gosh, why are we, like, why do I, the birthing process, why do I have to be strapped to a bed on monitors on my back if things are, if things are progressing as expected and there are no complications? And so there are lots of like ways we could, we could debate different aspects of the way we manage pregnancy and birth and why it's different all over the world. And outcomes are different in different countries, and we don't always necessarily do things the best way here. Sure, there's lots of room for that conversation. Yeah. When it comes to the glucose tolerance test and diagnosing diabetes, um, the reason we do that is that prior to our ability to diagnose and treat gestational diabetes, a, a lot of people died. 
It's just that simple. The outcomes before were really bad. Once we were able to appropriately risk stratify, diagnose, and treat people, the outcomes improved. This really isn't one of those areas. There is a lot of debate as to the exact threshold and when to test and who to test at what week. Like, we could get into all that. But the idea that it is important to diagnose and treat this is not is not debatable. Right. And uh, trying to replace that glucola because it tastes so bad with, like, I've seen, like, fruit drinks and Cokes and smoothies. It doesn't make sense because it has to be a, a certain amount of yes sugar for a test to work, right? It can't right. just be, like, something sugary. It has to be an exact amount of sugar, right? Yes. And it also it also is is proposing that there is something inherently dangerous about the sugar glucose. Yes. Which, which is, is not. Not. And then of course the other like thing they'll throw in there is and it's got a food dye in it. Which like mine was orange. So Fair. I am assuming <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh there was a food dye in it. Um, but it, it's playing on this idea that food dyes are inherently bad. And we've done a whole episode before about how like we don't have proof that artificial food dyes are inherently bad, <coughs> generally yeah. speaking. Like, we have talked about specific issues. Generally speaking, they're not. Um, so, when did we first figure out gestational diabetes? I mean, because you got to imagine, like, there have always been big babies. <laughs> <laughs> there have always been babies that were larger. I'm, pr- I'm proof of that, right. no matter how far back you go. Yes. Uh, it's weird, then, when you think about the fact that not only would there have always been larger babies, but if, like in my case, I, my my doc was very clear with us that our firstborn was not coming out. Not coming out. In a vaginal delivery. This was not going to happen. If you had been uh, alive in the 17 or 1800s, this baby would just end up macerated inside of you. <laughs> I remember he said that to us. And then you would become septic and die. That is what he told us. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I will say, like, I know that sounds like a really shocking thing. He's like the dude. Like, this, is, this guy's the goat. He delivered me. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows what he's talking he's about. He's been, he, yeah, he, he was an incredible doctor. And part of why he was talking to me that way is because I am also a physician. He knows me very well. He, yeah. he not only delivered me and was my doctor and delivered our oldest, he also, um, trained me in medical school. Yeah, he doesn't so. sugar, no sugar coating. No, and and he knew he knew that I understood and I was being resistant cuz I had a certain idea of how I wanted everything to go and of course the best laid plans. But anyway, yeah. anyway, it was all for it was all for the best. Everyone came out fine. Yeah, all good. Uh so and this that's true and I'm sure that happened and it's weird then that 1824 is when we get like the first report. Yeah. of a large baby. <laughs> And, like, that kind of started to clue people in, like, maybe we could look at certain things that predispose pregnant people to giving birth to these very large children that pose, like, especially in our prior to anesthesia and, you know, a sterile OR and all that kind of stuff, prior to our ability to safely do a C-section, if you can't get the baby out vaginally, that's catastrophic. I mean, that's what we were looking at was a catastrophic— Fatal event. These are for catastrophically patient and child. These are catastrophically chunky babies. Yes. As a catastrophically chunky baby myself, clocking in at a vivacious eleven pounds at birth, I understand the threat that we pose, and I know that we cannot go unstopped. You can't let us big babies run around <laughs> unchecked. Do- <laughs> Doctor Heinrich 
uh, Gottlieb Benowitz. Don't start me on that guy. The, we all talk about him at the big baby meetings. At the University of Berlin, he wrote up a case report. And this was when, like, we see, again, I'm sure there were big babies. But, <laughs> there, are, there have always been but since the beginning time and memorial big babies. <laughs> we're linking it to, he, he wrote up a case of a 22-year-old woman, Frederica Pape, who, um, during her pregnancy, this was her fifth pregnancy, she had gone to her doctor complaining of she was thirsty all the time. She could not stop drinking fluids. She was constantly thirsty. And um, at we, we've we talked about the idea of like studying urine on this show many times. We've talked about the urine color and flavor wheel. Remember that? Yes. You can go and yeah. you can diagnose lots of things by the smell color and yes, taste, taste of, the, of urine. The urine. Uh, and specifically, she had cloudy, stale-smelling urine throughout her pregnancy. And then when it came to time to give birth, she had a what was described as Herculean yeah. 12-pound baby. Yeah. That's even bigger than you, Justin. Uh, even bigger than you. I. It's not about that. It's just <laughs> about being a big baby, honey. It's not about comparing specific carriages. And this is when you first start to see this, like, this connection between, okay, there's some symptoms and some things that are happening during pregnancy. And we can see, like, the the patient is reporting stuff to us that they're observing. And then the urine is a signal there's something else there. Okay. And then we have this big baby, which, of course, poses a problem for us. Uh, listen, we've been very clear about that, <laughs> where we stand on big babies. And this was really like, and this was just one, and there were several case reports that he wrote up, but this really laid the groundwork for throughout the 1800s, us beginning to understand and establish like there is some sort of diabetic state that happens during pregnancy. And we're not sure who's going to get it, but we probably need to figure out how. And so I'm going to talk to you about the development of that test. But first, got to go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier then you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the— Easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although 
there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or clean up. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Somewhere in an alternate universe where Hollywood is smarter. And the Emmy nominees for Outstanding Comedy Series are... Jet Pacula. Airport Marriott. Thrupple. Dear America, We've Seen You Naked. And Allah in the Family. In our stupid universe... You can't see any of these shows, but you can listen to them on Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that brings you hilarious comedy pilots that the networks and streamers bought but never made. Journey to the alternate television universe of Dead Pilot Society on MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bullseye is celebrating 50 years of hip-hop by bringing you an entire month of brand new interviews with rappers. That means Jeezy. I put my pain in the music. Angie Stone. You know, hip hops. We called them hops back then. Master P. Music is what's going to open the doors for us, but whatever we come up with after this, it's going to be bigger. Plus, Chica, Saba, even the greatest of them all, Rakim. That's this September. Open up that podcast app. Type in Bullseye and hit subscribe. You're not going to want to miss any of this. Is it weird that I really want to try some of that goop now? It's so gross. Yeah. It's so It's sickeningly sweet. Yeah. Like. Could they put it in a snow cone for you? You just have to eat it really fast. I guess so, yeah. And it would dilute it, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to just get it down all at once. Like, it's about how your body tolerates the load. Right. I gotcha. So where were we, Sid? Okay. So we're in the late 1800s. Um, and based on these early observations and the fact that, like, we were able at least at this point to take these urine samples that we knew smelled a certain way. And again, like, we're not too far removed from the time when people would, like, dip a pinky and <laughs> taste a drop. Yeah. Because that used to happen. And say this urine is sweet. It's sweet. Mm-hmm. There's sugar in it. Sorry. There's sugar coming out of this human into their pee. You got a big baby brewing. And we already knew that 
sugar in your urine was connected with diabetes. Because we already knew about diabetes at this point, right? Like this was an entity. And now we're saying, okay, we have this person who before becoming pregnant, pee was normal. During pregnancy. Sweet pee. Sweet pee. (laughs) Um, And so you get all of these sort of like, like a a special unit was established in uh, Scotland by James Matthews Duncan, who started like to study these specific patients with these symptoms um, and monitor like what happens with these very various diabetic patients, what is the outcome in their pregnancy. Um, and what he was seeing is that from all of this, like he wrote up all of these observations, and this sort of underlines why we do this today. He saw that specifically, if you had this constellation of really thirsty, pregnant people mm-hmm. with this cloudy urine and they have sugar in their urine, they figured out, they get these big babies and the mortality rates were like 60% for the pregnant people and 47% for the babies. Wow. So very, very high. Um, and all of this was published uh, in journals in the late 1800s to kind of underline, we need to figure out a screening test. But at that point, Part of the reason there wasn't this big rush to figure out like, okay, how can we tease out the people who have gestational diabetes from those who don't is because we still didn't have a great treatment for diabetes yet. So it's like highlighting it didn't make much sense. Yeah, like what are we going to – other than knowing this could be catastrophic, like I don't know, you know, like you look at a pregnant person and say, okay, I can tell you from this constellation of things that you are very likely to have a giant baby that your pelvis cannot deliver. We are just at the point where we can maybe do C-sections – Maybe. Maybe. But even then, like not everyone has access to it. Not everybody can do it. So, I so mean, we could, what's the we point? Found a, we found some ways of finding the big babies before disaster struck, but didn't have a lot of great ways of getting the big babies out. Yes. And well, um, but we also didn't have a great way of managing gestational diabetes. Oh, right. Because Keeping that can prevent the parent. A, a, having a giant baby. And the, there are other complications. I'm focusing on the size of the baby because... You like to talk about that. But the, there are other, like, part of what can happen in babies that are born to uh, people with gestational diabetes that isn't controlled mm-hmm. is that immediately after they're born, their bodies will, because they've been processing all this extra sugar from the pregnant, you know, parent, their bodies will be producing all this insulin, but all that extra sugar isn't coming in anymore because now they're outside. Right, right, and right. they become severely hypoglycemic, meaning oh, low blood sugar. The inverse. Yes. So it is very common, and this is another thing that people get upset about, when a baby is born to somebody who's diabetic, that they pop. monitor their glucose levels. You don't give them a bomb pop. No, you don't give them a bomb pop. And also just large babies, if you remember, ours were. All babies get their sugar checked. Large babies, babies born to diabetic parents, that that you might have um, more monitoring, closer mm-hmm. monitoring. Right. Do you remember ours? Do you remember this happening? Um, Our second? Yeah. She had her, her sugar was a little low. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. And I would have to like feed and they would check again and make sure it was okay. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. That was wild. Yeah. That, this is why we're avoiding catastrophe that used to happen. Um, and then we discovered insulin. And we, again, we've talked about this extensively in our diabetes episode. In 1921 in Toronto, Banting and Best figured out how to get insulin from a dog's pancreas. And this was the beginning of our ability to manage diabetes and save lots of lives, right? Like this wasn't just about gestational diabetes. Like everybody with diabetes suddenly had a good way of managing it. We could give them the insulin that their body didn't have. Yeah. And 
save lives. I mean, because before that, it really it was a it was a that mortality rate from diabetes in general was very high. So we still need to figure out who's going to develop it. Okay, now we have insulin. Mm-hmm. We can use it in gestational diabetes. Great. How can we predict who's going to develop it so that we're not playing catch up, sweet, right? Sweet pea. And so it started with Dr. Priscilla White in 1949. She was working at the Joslin uh, Clinic in Boston. And she came up with a system called White's Classification. And this was used for a really long time. And basically, it was like an alphabetic list. And it was really uh, patient history-based. So they were looking, it would be based on an interview. There wasn't necessarily any tests to do or anything like that. It was just, I'm going to ask you some questions and based on past pregnancies, based on um, your medical history, like do you have high blood pressure? Obviously, did you have you been diagnosed with diabetes before? Family history, like just stuff in the patient's history. They would give you a classification mm-hmm. that would risk stratify you as to like, do we think you might develop diabetes? Doctor House says everybody lies. That's I saw that on your show. Well, that that's true, but I. Patient history-based is a—I mean, it's good. Like, patient history-based screening is obviously critical in mm-hmm. a lot of the decision-making we make in medicine. Um, but the problem, too, is that gestational diabetes could affect people that you didn't necessarily predict. Mm-hmm. So there needed to be a nice, standardized way to check at some point in pregnancy to just see if, like, are you developing this and there was no way we could have known. I have an idea. What's that? What if I make them a super sweet goop and make <laughs> them drink it? Well, that's exactly what happened in 1964. I I should mention, though, it's not for science. I just love making pregnant people drink super sweet goop. It's kind of my thing. Um, but if it helps science, too, that's like an added perk. I have to imagine the first people who tried this, like, were yeah. ready to throw it back in the researcher's face. Like, you you yeah. know I'm pregnant and I feel like crap and you want me to drink this? Well, maybe it was better then. Maybe they were using, like, Sprite syrup from the machine. You it know? probably wasn't dyed. Like it probably no. wasn't. It probably doesn't need to be dyed. We could probably, no, probably halfway on that. I I don't. I always wondered. You know that I don't know that point. Um, do you think like it looks? It looks more like a drink that I have had in my life. If it was just a clear glucose substance. Oh, uh, it's like drinking Cairo syrup or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not fizzy or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Kool Aid. Just getting thirstier and thirstier. We got to move on. <laughs> So uh, John O'Sullivan and Claire Mahan invented um, a the originally the two-step oral glucose tolerance test. Um, and basically, well, and th- this is, and when I say two-step, I mean like a one-hour and a three-hour. Those are the two steps. Got it. So uh, they were the ones who first standardized and came up with, we'll give you 50 grams of glucose, um, and then we will check your blood glucose in an hour. And then, of course, in the second step, we check your sugar 100 grams of glucose every hour for three hours. Um, And the reason that we still use those amounts and those hour cutoffs and all that same criteria is because that's how they did the study. Um, Any kind of like screening test we're using, any, any, not just screening test, diagnostic test, in order to come up with what's a positive answer and a negative answer, Mm -hmm. unless we're just looking for something, like I guess... If you're if you're checking someone's blood for bacteria, mm-hmm. you don't really need a cutoff, right? It's either there or it's not. Right. But for a lot of other tests we do, we're using it's a more of a gray area. Yeah, we're using a cutoff range. So to know what a normal hemoglobin level is, mm-hmm. 
they went out and sampled hundreds of thousands of people in the population. They just took their blood and looked at what their hemoglobin was. And this fell into a bell curve, right? Are you familiar with that idea, Justin, a bell curve? Okay. And then they took the middle chunk of the bell curve and said, this is normal. (laughs) And then everybody out on the tails isn't, right? And so like, that's where we get these ranges. And so when any, any test that you're coming up against, if you're wondering like, well, why do we do it this specific way? It's because it was the way we did it when we first came up with the test. It's the way the test was standardized. And it's the only way that the test continues to work. Because if you, you do the test. The data, you, the data is dependent on this response, right? Yes. So you can't compare it to other people's responses because the the input isn't standardized. It, we gave somebody who wasn't diabetes, who, who didn't have diabetes, we gave them a 50 gram glucose load and then we checked their blood sugar in an hour. And then we did that over and over and over and over and over again. And we came up with what that cutoff number is. Right. If you give somebody a pink drink from Starbucks, I don't know what their glucose level will predictably be in an hour. Mm-hmm. I could give you some basic ideas based on we kind of know how the body handles uh, a sugar load and how a diabetic versus non-diabetic person would handle that. We kind mm-hmm. of have those ideas. But as far as like a perfect cutoff, of course I couldn't give you that because yeah. I never did a study where I gave a bunch of pregnant people pink drinks and then... Not that you wrote down. I mean, you've done your own <laughs> informal work. I tried the pink drink actually after pregnancy because there was a rumor that it would help with breast milk production. I don't really know that that is true, but I did like the pink drink. So, you know, there was that. Um I, you must kind of love the pink drink, though. I've never seen you order one ever again. No, I I prefer coffee. Uh, anyway, so that is why we continued to do the test that way, is because back in 1964, when O'Sullivan first sort of wrote the cutoff diagno- you know, values and everything that was diagnostic, this is how they did the test. There are different kinds of sugar in different beverages and foods and everything, yes. right? There are lots of forms of sugar. And they will they will raise your blood glucose in slightly different ways okay. to different levels and at different rates. And so, and, and plus, I don't know if you just say like, I drank some Coke, how much, and that's a different kind of sugar and exactly how, you know, how many hours or how many minutes have elapsed. Mm-hmm. I can't use that diagnostically. So people who are advocating for you to, go against your doctor's orders and do the test sort of in your own way. You're not doing the test anymore. Yes, you're just drinking something. Yes, and so the data that your doctor gets to try to interpret will not mean anything. And the risk of that is that you may be diagnosed with gestational diabetes when you don't have it, or you may not be diagnosed with gestational diabetes when you do have it. Um, And that's bad. Yeah. That for all the reasons we already talked about, because the mortality rate of gestational diabetes was very high for both the pregnant person and the baby prior to our ability to test for it, diagnose it, and then treat it with insulin. Um, so anybody urging you not to do that. And now a lot of people point out there's been a lot of discourse through the years. We've had multiple um, like giant international uh, workshops where they get experts because basically we take all this data and mm-hmm. then we get all of the experts together at a giant conference and make, make guidelines yeah. up based on the data, right? Um, the data doesn't some always wild parties that that just how <laughs> chunky can a baby be 
conferences. <laughs> I bet, you know, that'd be interesting to know, like, how wild did different medical conferences based on the specialty get? These are yeah. OBGYN conferences. I don't know. I'm oh, a yeah. family doctor. Yeah. Our conferences, like, everybody just assumes we, like, all wear burks and mm-hmm. have sing-alongs by the fire. And <laughs> I, I, bet, I bet dermatologists get the wildest. You think? Everybody, dermatologists? Everybody with perfect, touchably soft, creamy skin, the light reflecting off of it, and just so. Everybody's taking care of their look. Everybody looks great. Everybody I, looks phenomenal. It looks like uh, freaking Hunger Games. The rich people up there with their perfect skin. Incredible. <laughs> bunch of golds up there. I, I, I definitely think compared to a family doctor one, ours would be at a campsite. It would not be fancy. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're all, um, we don't make that kind of money. Uh, Orthopedists and, would be wild too because they get drunk and they'd be like, I want to fix any bones. I don't think they would get drunk. They they take way too good care of themselves for that. Okay. They wouldn't drink. They'd be very well hydrated. They would, they would on, all go. They they'd all go on, jog together, they and get, then they'd lift. They get high on lactic acid. And <laughs> they, yes. Just start fixing bones. <laughs> yes. Um, they're healthier than we are. Uh, anyway, so not they, healthier than me. I review <laughs> video games. So they've they've held all these workshops through the years. I think this is important to bring up because, again, all of this stuff is nuanced and you can't just acknowledge one side or the other. We have reevaluated many times through the years from 1979 up to 2005. And then again, as of 2020, we've we've reevaluated all of these guidelines over and over and over again. And different countries do manage this differently. A lot of what I'm telling you is the way the United States has decided you know, our medical organizations have standardized our care. There are other countries where they don't necessarily screen everybody based on the same criteria or at the same number of weeks. They look for different things. And the idea is there is a there is a thought like, do you screen too much in the U.S.? But there are other countries where we would argue you don't screen enough because you're missing people and you're not managing their diabetes. Um, so there's definitely room for people who are well-intentioned and understand the data, who are experts in this field, to sit and discuss and debate what is the best way to take this screening tool and apply it appropriately so that we save as many lives as possible. That's like a conversation we have about everything in medicine. Um, But currently, our best advice is do the test when your medical provider recommends you do the test and do it in the way, certainly, if you're going to do it, do it it the way that they tell you to. Because otherwise, like, you've drunk some stuff, you got your blood drawn, maybe you paid for it because it's the United States and we make you pay for medical care here. And if you did it wrong, it's meaningless and you've wasted your time and you got stuck with a needle for no reason. Like, what's the point? If you're going to do it, do it right. And let me tell you, just do it. Just do it. Do the test. It's good to know. Maybe we they'll can have man- ban- thank- maybe they'll have banana. You never know. Maybe they'll have banana. I don't, know. I don't know what flavors they have. Mine was orange. But before we had this amazing medical advance, the glucose tolerance test and insulin to manage diabetes, before that, a lot of people died unnecessarily. So that's why we do it. I think that's probably the best reason to do something in medicine. I agree. Because it prevents death. Um. <laughs> That's actually the first day. They're like, why do we do all this? You may be asking. Well, <laughs> to prevent death. <laughs> uh, thank as you. long as we possibly can. Thank you so Good job, Sid. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. We hope that you'll have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you 
for listening. That's going to do it for us this week on Saul Buzz. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.